We're here in Brooklyn, New York with Josh Nisley. But there's, this is a topic that, that I've heard about recently and really piqued my interest. And I know it's something you're really interested in as, in as well. And that is Jesus as a refugee. Um, we don't really think of that. We always think of his time of ministry and, you know, all of the miracles and times with his disciples, whatever. But we tend to forget that they, you know, he and his family fled to Egypt when he was a small child and lived there for many years. Walk us through that. Explain that a little. And then also, how does that change our perception of who Jesus is? Sure. Yeah, I might, might use the term displaced person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think before starting at Jesus, you, you have to sort of step back and go all the way back to Genesis. Because one of the things that, as I started looking at this, the, the Bible is just full of stories of God caring for displaced people. Like huh. nearly every single what we would consider hero or major figure in the Bible was displaced at one point or other in their life. The, the, the classic example is Abraham. You know, God said, just go. Like, I'm not telling you wow. where to go. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he packed up and left and he went. A lot of Genesis is watching God take care of Abraham through that journey. But, you know, it, it doesn't stop there. There's, you know, Joseph gets sold as a slave um, for a nation. You know, it's, it's um, all this, this care for people that end up in places that are new. You don't understand the language. You don't know the culture. Yeah. It, it's confusing. King David, for example, you know, spent a good portion of his life on the run from Saul, mm-hmm. you know, hiding in caves and trying not to get killed. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we get to Jesus. And then after Jesus, there's like the, the apostles, the early church, basically spent their life on the run. But, but Jesus, yeah, he has that, that early fleeing you know, into Egypt to save his life, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and then after that, you know, we see all the way through his ministry, he's, he's itinerant. He has, you know, it says, I have no place to lay my head. Yeah. He's, he's always on the run. There's no, there's no home base. There's no, like, center of operations. He's just itinerant. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think that ought to change the way that we, the way that we look at the Bible. It, once you start seeing the Bible through that, len- that lens, you, there's almost no escaping it. Almost every story is, wow. is filled with this idea. You know, there's no teaching thou shalt love the refugee in the New Testament. There certainly is in the Old but but that idea of God's love, God's heart for displaced people, I think, is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting. You even have like the children of Israel who spent significant portions of their history on the move mm-hmm. or in foreign lands, Assyria, you know, Syria, Babylon, Egypt. So, what are the implications of that? So, this is a thread we see throughout Scripture, especially we're thinking in the case of Jesus. But what's the implications for our theology? Yeah. So I think one of the things, there's this idea throughout the Bible that a relationship with God, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is what ultimately brings the longing. So mm-hmm. in the same way that a relationship with God is the only way to true peace, uh, a relationship with God is the only way to really find belonging. So there's this idea of, mm-hmm. look at all these characters that were all over the place, but still were able to find peace you, know, you think of David writing the Psalms, able mm-hmm. to find peace in the middle of you know, chaos, middle of being displaced. I think that's a, um, one aspect. There's another aspect that's just um, God really has a heart for people that are displaced. You know, you could ask why, and the Bible doesn't necessarily always answer that question, but it's clear. You look at the text, uh, God 
cares about those people that are, in a special way, those people that, that are on the run. You, you go through the Old Testament, the term that's often translated stranger mm-hmm. effectively means immigrant. And so mm. you see, repeatedly, Bring the immigrant into your feast. Care for the immigrant. Don't take advantage of the immigrant. Love the immigrant. It's just again and again and again. You you can't escape it. So what would be the implications then specifically for Jesus? Jesus as a refugee, how does that, what are the direct implications of how we view what Jesus was doing here on earth? Well, certainly you can can carry out ministry uh, in the middle of displacement. I think that's maybe Mm -hmm. part of it. But there's also this idea of Jesus was, I think, modeling part of, of how we're to live. And that's not to say that we should all live as displaced people, mm-hmm. but there is this idea that we, we can't find, we, we must not find or try to find ultimate belonging here on earth. Like in, the, mm-hmm. uh, in where we live, in what we live in, you know, in our financial security. One of the, the constant temptations, I think especially in America, or, or so economically secure, is mm-hmm. to say, this world is my home. Like, I'm setting up shop, this is where I belong, and I'm going to make myself secure here, I'm gonna make myself comfortable here. And the call of the gospel is a call, effectively, to be displaced no matter where you are. Th- mm-hmm. This world, um, I am here, I'm a part of this world, but this is not ultimately where I find belonging. Mm-hmm. This is not ultimately where I find meaning or security. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. It's like Jesus was modeling that for us. Um, yeah, I mean, at the same time, he did have a hometown, but, but there's big chunks of his life when he was on the move. I think it's it's interesting. Anabaptists um, started out like the whole movement was started out by people on the run, people you know, losing their home, trying <laughs> to stay alive. Uh-huh. And there's there's great stories of people of Anabaptists, Mennonites, migrating uh, to the New World, migrating out of Europe, out of Russia, into the U.S., into Canada, into Paraguay, Mm -hmm. and how God took care of those people in the midst of that. And so I think we have this sort of this uh, idealized view of us as being the scrappy underdogs, but the reality (laughs) is, at this point, Anabaptists more or less live comfortable, solidly middle-class, stable lives and mm-hmm. and the, the temptation in that context is going to be I want to make myself comfortable I want to set up shop here this is where I make my home yeah yeah that's a real that's a real temptation so again framing Jesus as a refugee or as a displaced person how does that affect our obedience to his call on our lives yeah well I think I think there's maybe two aspects one is once you have let go of, of your home, your community as the, as the ultimate place you find belonging, mm-hmm. it frees you up to, to be mobilized either to go overseas as part of sharing the gospel, that kind of thing. I think Christians are called to have a global view, to consider mm-hmm. sharing the gospel in many different cultures. But I think there's another one, and that is just God's call to love the stranger, love the immigrant. Mm. Uh, what, one of the things, again, I think that we, as conservative Anabaptists, have allowed conservative politics to, to push us in is this idea of how do we view people coming into our communities who are not like us? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we view people that have, have grown up somewhere, been born somewhere, and are, and are immigrating, are being displaced into our communities? Mm-hmm. And the, the gospel just, well, starting with the Old Testament, 
the whole law, the teaching there, and Jesus' example, and then we see the early church. Like that whole thing, it's unavoidable. God cares about the immigrant, and God says we are, we are to love them as one of our own and, and to bring them in and maybe adopt them, if you will. It is one of those things where I think in, in current culture we will be swimming against the tide, but we've got to do it if we're going to maintain the, the purity of the gospel. Yeah, that, that could radically affect how you live and how you interact with the community around you. That's the last, last question I had. Is there anything else you would like to add? My, my history further back is fuzzy, but I, I clearly see a trend starting in the mid-20th century with the church pulling political issues and, and taking routes of convenience rather than radical calls to the gospel. I realize this view may not be popular, but, but if we look at King David's life, I see his life as pre and post Bathsheba, right? Mm -hmm. so, so before Bathsheba, things were going well, God was blessing him, he was following God, and after Bathsheba, things just went sideways, went downhill. And um, this is just my personal opinion. Uh, you can argue with me on this one. I, I do have yet to find a credible pushback, but it's my belief that the Americans church, American church's Bathsheba moment was its failure to address segregation and racism in the mid-20th century. So that is when the church took a stance and said, there's clear teaching that there is neither Jew nor Greek uh, in the eyes of God. There's, there's clear teaching that the gospel is for all people, but we are going to, for political convenience, for economic advantage, we are going to ignore that almost to a man. I mean, there were exceptions, but the exceptions proved the rule. Uh, we are going to step away from that and we are, we're effectively going to, to ignore what the gospel says on this. Wow. So there was that and there was also divorce and remarriage. It sets up, I think, I think that was the church's Bathsheba moment. I, I think getting back, if it ever will, will start with going back to that and saying, we were wrong and let's set that one right. Yeah. Um, but how that applies here is, I see the church starting to do the same thing today with immigration, <laughs> with, say, with allowing uh, conservative politics to dictate and to trump what the Bible clearly teaches about how we treat other people. I think there will be, there will be heavy uh, moral and spiritual consequences. You know, part of the reason that, that the failure to confront racism was so deadly, I think there are two reasons. One is there is something spiritual that happens when a movement says we are going to ignore the gospel teaching that you can read it, it's, it's unescapable. We're going to ignore that teaching for the sake of expediency. So there was something spiritual that happened there that I think mm -hmm. led to the decline of the church. But also what happened is the church allowed, by and large, allowed the humanist movement to take the charge on racism. And so now when, and so the, the church effectively ceded the moral high ground to secularism. And so now when, mm. when people come and say, you know, yeah, you oppose homosexuality, but look, you also opposed desegregation. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you don't like black people, you don't like immigrants, you don't like homosexuals, it's all the same thing. It's not the same thing, mm -hmm. but because we ceded the moral high ground, you know, 70 years ago, um, it's now a very tough claim to come back and say, no, 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 no. we realize now we were wrong on racism, okay. but somehow homosexuality is different. It is deeply different, it's very different, but because we allowed humanists effectively to act more in line with the gospel in this matter, um, 
I think American Christianity will always be on its back feet, on its heels in relation to morality. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, part of my heart cry with, with integration right now is we have a similar moment right now. Instead of African Americans, it's people coming from overseas. But we, we have a choice. Are we going to love those people and adopt them and radically say, uh, I don't care what is, you know, economically ideal. What is just the way the world works? What is mm-hmm. um, what my conservative neighbors are telling me? I'm going to follow the call of the gospel. Or are we going to, to allow the, the, the conservative political realm dictate how we feel about these things? And mm-hmm. it's my belief that 50 years from now, we will look back on this moment the same way that we're now looking back on racism. Like it will be unescapable what was the right decision and the consequences wow. are just as big. So I think we've got an opportunity and I think we're in the process of blowing it. We, wow. We've got to, to, I think, change the way that we think. I think we've got to change who we're listening to and say we're going to follow the gospel. Mm-hmm. To actually bring it back to what the scriptures say about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it goes back to what Larry Hurtado says in uh, Destroyer of the Gods. The early church was radically multicultural, multi-ethnic, and that, that astonished people. It astonished mm-hmm. people back then, and it will astonish people today if we actually pull it off. Mm-hmm. That, that idea that I will adopt people that are different than me because of the, there's this, this spiritual plane that trumps any other differences was shocking back then, and it's going to be shocking now yeah, if we can do it. If we can actually pull it off. It's a high bar. Uh, that's set by God and by Scripture, but you know, at the same time, it's something that I think our churches can do. It's just a matter of if we are willing to do it. Yeah, the early church did it. It's, yeah, it's doable. Yeah. It, this is not like some Platonic ideal that you know <laughs> isn't actually doable. It's mm-hmm. doable, but it's going to take radical change. Yeah, and and a lot of commitment. Wow, that's powerful. That's a that's a lot to think about right there. <laughs> yeah, wow. I'm really curious what our audience is going to think, and, and maybe if they have lots of questions, we can point them your way. So. Sounds true. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, Josh, it's for, my pleasure. for joining us. Yes, this was good. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for listening to Anabaptist Perspectives. Your listening and sharing this with friends helps more people find our episodes. A special thanks to all of you who support Anabaptist Perspectives financially. We are here because of you. If you haven't had the chance to give yet this year, would you consider making a year-end donation? You can donate on our website or by check. Thank you so much for listening and supporting Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.